The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Simon Tishko. And for today's detour, we go on a road trip with seven academics on a train to somewhere far north of London. As someone who never really gets further than Mornington Crescent, it all rather felt to me like Get Carter, so hence the really rather Roy Budd theme tune playing in the background, which is all rather nice. Um, this is part two of the first episode broadcast last week and features various edited excerpts plus the beginning of the talk at Leeds Metropolitan University and Art Gallery. Um, the whole situation was uh, facilitated by delicious academic Peter Lewis and was based around the poem um, Coup de Day Never abolishes chance by Stephanie Malame. Um, there'll be many familiar, familiar voices, including our very own Cecilia Wee, Peter Sachin, myself, and um, Peter Fellingham will be nattering and joining in the talk with the students of the MA Art and Design course at Leeds University. Anyway, pin back your ears, settle back for a journey, a seven academics on a train, ending in a symposium in Leeds. What better for a sunny June afternoon? Oh, no. oh. 
See, Peter's, from what I understand, is Peter is formally maintaining the intellectual side of this yeah. Beano that we're on today. Yeah. I'm going to get them saying nothing at all. Oh, that's impossible. Yeah, it's impossible, isn't it? Lucian, would you like a cheese sandwich? No. Lots of intellectual questions. Why, out of all of this, I like that. She's well, I had my, my servant make them for me. Oh, your servant? I just mentioned Peter Sutchin and she said, I want to make him a cheese and rocket. Don't you? No, he doesn't. Neither do I. I thought you were like. He's milk intolerant. No, not mine. You don't eat cheese. Turn the recorder off. This is not going on the restaurant. It is. We've been having a lovely time back here. What I'm going to do is put lots of scratchy record sounds behind it. Yeah. That doesn't help. So we sound even older. We're Chatham. Listen, I'm very, very, very traditional, me. More traditional than you can ever imagine. <laughs> this is that silver thing from Bravo 2-0, which you probably haven't read recently. He's not a true patriot, you see. I prefer to be a passenger rather than a customer. I don't like being a customer. I'm not a customer. Passengers seek to use standard accommodation and wish to remain seated. But what, I'm resonant? I do that though. I get I get waves and sort of mad. I was doing a performance project in Lithuania and we were travelling by little buses called Latvias from Lima, wherever we went. And got on one and there was the most beautiful young Lithuanian girl. I mean shocking. And I just just within ten minutes of us getting on the bus, I was she was sitting next to me and we were absolutely locked into it. <laughs> and then I ended up spending because I wasn't quite aware of what my spending plan was on my phone. 150 pounds in text to her over the course of the next week and it turned out that the last series of texts her boyfriend had actually got hold of her phone and started texting me in her place to try and find out just how far we had gone oh really and he was saying what was your favorite moment with us and i did reply quite nicely when i held your ankle as we went under that bridge <laughs> Isn't that great? See, that would have driven me wild. Yeah, no, it drove me wild. 150 pounds worth of tech. Did you, did you actually squeeze it? Yeah, I did. Very gently. It's more of a caress than a squeeze. Isn't it great when you meet people from places that sound a bit spy-like? When we were in East Berlin, before the wall came down, I met a girl there one day, and that was a very, very strange and sexy day. Well, there's an illicit and a passing nature makes things more seductive and yeah. more interesting. What were you doing in East You Berlin? don't get that on the island. If you stay on the island, you don't get that. If you no. stick around on this sodding island. Well, I get over that by never leaving the house for months on end. So when I do go out, it feels as if I'm abroad anyway. That's the, that's the trick I've discovered. Stay, stay at home and the do only, some work. Yeah, the only trick of being... No, I stay at home and stay in bed. I did four months last year. Really? God. I just took to my bed. I still did my radio show and I actually broadcast a free special from under the duvet where I read children's books from a, with a torch. So I couldn't be bothered to go to the actual event. <laughs> Which books? Magic Forage? No, I found, um, I had a book, it's, it, it's an adventure book for boys from the 1940s or maybe the 50s. It was actually quite boring, but... Were they, were they were it just boys doing yeah, good just boys. boys things? Boys with strange grown-up men. Yeah, I know, it's funny, wasn't it, yeah. really? Because on that, on that um, ripping yarns, when they have David Hunter from Crossroads as the uncle, as a weird uncle, and it's a five-go-mad-in-dorset type mm -hmm. ripping yarns, mm -hmm. 
And it's really funny. And then David Hunter from Crossroads is a mad, strange uncle. He played it very well. I remember in one of those, which was a comic strip one, they had Peter Wingard. That's right. They had Peter Wingard dressed up as Hitler in the end. <laughs> and that was just when he'd been caught. Do you know what they used to call him? In the, yeah, gone. Oh my God, that's really good instantly. Yeah, you need to do very little and you're there. The thing is, unlike Anthony Hopkins, I'd almost do nothing, and I'm him, and I can do that. Bruno Gantz thing as well. I've met Anthony Hopkins. We call him Tony. Oh, do you? Hi, Tony. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's lovely, isn't he? Yeah. Um, Peter Wingard was actually known in the film business as Petunia Winegum. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so lovely. And I discovered this recently while researching early episodes of the Department S. Have you spoken to him? No. He lives in South Edward Square, doesn't he? Is he still alive? What's gonna I thought I thought he was. Yeah, he might well be. Oh he my got god. Disgraced. What are you gonna yeah, say? No, that's a great Imagine idea. how amazing that would be fantastic. What an excellent idea. Peter Wingard reads. Thank you. some brown sauce. Thank you. 
Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the talk on chance at the throw of dice. And I will um, start by thanking Leeds Art Gallery uh, for allowing us to do this. Is the I think the seventh event I've done in here with the MA Art Design. Um, the last year's event was called Virtue Horizon, and it's a similar structure. Uh, the works on the tables are intentionally thrown into a kind of uh, indecipherability or undecidability according to the uh, dictum of Mallarmé, the famous, um, infamous poem, um, and coup de day, the throw of dice will never abolish chance. Uh, what was strictly um, adhered to as a text, in fact, it was just a starting point. And that's why the works are on show are very diverse in their interpretations. In fact, often they're so diverted from the original that they start to just negotiate the idea of how chance operates in, for, in proceeding to make a work of art or, or in, a, in, t in the sense of typography and design or performance, film, um, all kinds of different uh, aspects of the media that we teach. Uh, we also teach curating and this sort of idea of throwing a show, this idea of throwing the dice or throwing the show and uh, allowing something to fail at the same time as it succeeds seems to encapsulate a kind of methodology that uh, I've advanced over the last 30 or 40 years. So that it, it's, um, let's put it in another way, it's experimental. In fact, I think that the experimental nature of this, uh, uh, of this procedure, which involves both a talk, both speech, the speech act uh, is central also to Mallarmé's original conviction that uh, the way that one reads or the way that one creates um, infinite possibilities from the relation between uh, the word, in his sense poetry, meter and rhyme, uh, and in his sense also the French meter, rhyme and couplet, but to be a bit technical there, but in the, in the sense of delivering that as a, also in the terms of a song, then enters into the realm, not so much of music, but, but of art, I think, generally. It's a more general way of construction. And so the idea of chance is that something can be constructed only through its impossibility of the absolute control over construction. So there's something that is, at the same time it's being constructed, it, it's also opening up an infinite possibility where there's uh, contradictions inherent contradictions. And in Mallarmé, that, that, that inherent contradiction, as Quentin Millissou's book um, de decodifies, that inherent contradiction uh, is another name for modernity. It's another name for chance, is, is, has completely replaced the notion of God. So chance operates through the whole modern period. And it's, uh, I've invited um, guest speakers today uh, who've kindly come along um, and I'll, I will, I'm going to read a panel with Peter Finnenham, artist, curator, academic, Nushin Farhid, artist and curator, currently lecturing at Central St. Martins, uh, Colm Lally, artist and director of Event Gallery, Giorgio Sadotti, who's not, uh, not here but has, is represented by a piece and I'm going to have to perform it embarrassingly so I'm going to have to actually perform this piece. Pieces such an artist and critic for Art Monthly, an artist uh, who's also represented here with, a, with a, one of his works. Um, Simon Tisco, artist and broadcaster, Resonance Radio. Um, Dr. Dr. Cecilia Wee, I've put that in there just to... <laughs> as a lecturer in communications at the Royal College and musicologist. Uh, and uh, broadcaster also for Resonance Radio. Um, and we have myself and Makiko, my partner, and we both work together and produce, uh, these days we produce performance works. So I feel that it's a, a very radical gesture in that art, these are not just artists, but they're, uh, they're working across those borderlines that usually separate one activity from another, such as curating or uh, event-based work, especially Column has um, been running a, 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 a project in London 
it's actually called event. And so the idea that the event and the chance come together in some way is central to what I'm advancing as a question to ask the, the uh, panel. But I thought that really also, historically speaking, it would be quite good to get Peter Suchin to talk a little bit first about um, some of those origins around Mallarmé, the influence uh, that he had in, through Edouard Manet, of course, they were very close. Uh, that awkwardness and that, that ambiguity that opens up when you remove punctuation completely and you start to enter into, a, into a, an event-based structure that has completely indiscriminate coordinates, but somehow to evolve works through those indiscriminations. I'll hand over the... I don't know if you want to use the mic. I've rolled them up. Okay. Maybe I'll I can just... Oh, you could hold... Yeah, I can just hold, hold it, yeah. Because then you have to work out whether you're honest or not. <laughs> yeah. Which is problematic. Okay, I'm going to have to read the... Well, I'm not going to read from notes. But I'm going to extemporise from them. So, because um, my mind goes blank when I have to do these. <laughs> but I'm going to talk really about two artists, just as, uh, as Pete said, a kind of introduction. Uh, I'm going to talk, first of all, about Marcel Duchamp, and then about, uh, briefly, about a composer called Gavin Bryars, to do with chance. Right? So, uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring any slides of this work, so I'll try and describe it, and if you're really interested in it, you'll have to just uh, you know, look it up, if you don't know it. Okay, so Duchamp, I think that nearly all his practice, I mean, Duchamp was born in um, 1887, and he died in... Uh, 1968. All his practice uh, is very much linked to the notion of chance and to using chance as um, a method to make work. And uh, on the one hand, uh, he's against the notion of the rational and of ordered logic, which I think Pete would have mentioned anyway. Uh, but he's also against the notion of the aesthetic. So, for example, with other group, other people involved in the movement called Dardo, which Duchamp was affiliated, other artists like Hans Arp. They use chance to produce a new kind of aesthetic, right? When I'm saying that I don't think Duchamp was trying to produce a new form of beauty, he was just seeing what happened when you use chance. Um, the kind of connection with Mallarmé, really, is that Duchamp, uh, in a number of interviews, he says that he was much, always much more influ influenced by writers as opposed to artists, which is, you know, perhaps sounds a bit snobby or something, but I think he's just being honest and saying that's where my ideas come from, they come from writers. And he mentions Mallarmé in interviews, so we know he is influenced, it's not, you know, just an assumption. He mentions Mallarmé, he also mentions a writer called Alfred Jarry, and he also mentions Raymond Roussel, and I'll briefly talk about them in a minute. Um, if you look at the writing, you know, as far as I've read stuff on Duchamp, if you look through Duchamp's interviews, you find that he mentions a work called Igitor, which is a name. He mentions a work called Igitor by Mallarmé. So it's not the piece Pete's referring to, but it is another famous piece. And it's a work that is a kind of short story, which at one stage in this little story describes a descent, a figure descending a staircase. So that's been suggested that Duchamp's painting, New Descending a Staircase, is partly based on that. But also it involves the character in the story throwing a dice. So it's a second work by Mallarmé that deals with the randomness and, and chance. Okay, the first work by Duchamp that um, he really went into looking at the notion of um, chance and experimenting with chance is a piece called Three Standard Stoppages. Right? I have to describe it. Three Standard Stoppages, 1913. This is uh, done. And what he did, he took three pieces of thread, uh, yeah, three pieces of string or thread, held them a metre high, or the, sorry, the threads were a metre long each, he held them a metre high and he dropped them onto the floor and then he glued them onto bits of paper in the shape that they fell. So he got three different kind of experiments of dropping a piece of string. And then he gets three different measurements from it. So what he does, he reinvents the idea of the metre. So there's something quite uh, strange about that, to invent your own uh, measurement. It's looking at Pete's cousin. Yeah, invent your they, own measurement. They fell randomly. Yeah. Well, God caused it time, yeah. Um, Three, you know, he invents three new measurements. It's kind of like saying, I'll invent my own universe, I'll re-measure and restructure the world. It, well, perhaps it implies that. So he invented this new um, kind of measuring device, and he called it, uh, he said he was dealing with what he called playful physics, or another word he used was canned chance, like he's captured chance in a, you know, in a kind of gesture or in a performance. 
Now, um, I mentioned the writer Jarry. Jarry is an incredible character, Alfred Jarry, but one thing about him is he invented this um, strange thing called pacifistics. This is Jarry, who was an influence. He invented this thing called pacifistics, which is a kind of science that isn't at all scientific, because it always looks at just the exceptions and not the repeatable things, right? Because science looks at repeatable incidents and says there are rules for things. So Jarry looks at exceptions, so it's a kind of joke science. And I think that's what Duchamp was massively influenced by with Jarry, that he, um, Duchamp, by using chance, makes things happen only once, and then he turns it into a word. So this openness to chance and to exploring things is, is there in, in that way. Uh, then Duchamp went on to make this very uh, ma a major piece called The Large Class. You probably know it, some people know it. A large construction called The Large Class. It's nine feet high and it consists of two sheets of, if you don't know it, two large sheets of glass on which are inscribed um, a series of drawings. That's just something like that. Now the thing about this is, when he laid out this drawing on the glass, he used the standard stoppages as a way of measuring things on the glass. So he invents his own measurement, then he starts applying it to make a work. Um, a couple of other things about the glass that are to do with chance is that because it's a, a work of art that's on glass, wherever you put the work of art, obviously the context and what you see through the glass is changed, isn't it? So there's a, a huge element of chance in what is included when you view the work. So it depends on where it's where it is. Now that piece by Duchamp is in Philadelphia and it never ever gets moved. So you just see what you, know, what you see through it there. Um, Duchamp also used uh, a toy, like a child, like a toy cannon with matchsticks dipped in paint and he fired them at the glass when he was working on it to decide where certain things went on the glass. So that's another use of chance. You know, wherever these things hit, I'll make a mark. And then uh, yet another thing to do with chance in this particular work is that um, in 1926 or thereabout, thereabouts, the work was exhibited and then it was transported from the gallery and it was in storage for two, for two years, I think. And when the person who'd organised the exhibition opened the crate, she rang up, she contacted Duchamp and said, oh, look, if there's a problem, your major work, this piece, the large glass, it's all smashed up in the crate. And what had happened, when it was being transported, apparently, the lorry transporting the work must have you know, been very bumpy and the, the work got cracked very badly. So what did Duchamp do? He just said, oh, it's finished by chance. Right? So that openness to chance thing is quite interesting as a model of using chance. And then he kind of glued it together so it wouldn't fall to bits completely. But then when you see it, it's exhibited. You know, the cracks are part of the work there. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, making use of a set of relationships within the work. Um, another, uh, <coughs> speaking through this, another... Um, aspect of Duchamp's work to do with chance is what he called ready-mades. You know, they said ready-mades. And, ready and uh, as you probably know, the ready-mades are objects that Duchamp selected, mundane objects. He would select and posit them as not so much works of art as potential works of art. But what he did, he would give himself a, a little, like a note or an instruction, which would say, on the 4th of July, uh, 1942, at 3 p.m., I will pick the next ready-made. So he, he called this a rendezvous, rendezvous with the future. And so again, it's open to chance where he is and when he's, what he's doing at that moment and what he finds in the room. That, then he has to pick one of these uh, ready-mades. So there's chance, you know, a kind of controlled chance really because he sets something up almost like a scientific experiment and then he lets it, you know, play itself, play itself out. Uh, yet another uh, aspect of Duchamp and chance is his... Um, endless use of word plays and puns, which I think was very heavily influenced by a French writer called Raymond Roussel. Perhaps we'll talk about him later, I don't know how much time now. But uh, if you take a word and you make a word play with it or a pun, you get a new meaning, that's, that's the idea, isn't it? But depending on the sounds in the language and how, how clever you are and whatever else, you generate a new meaning that's open to the, to the chance um, echo of other words in the words you're using. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So all the way through his work, he's using uh, chance. Uh, I'll give one, <coughs> excuse me, one more example. In 1957, Duchamp uh, gave a talk in, uh, I think it was Chicago, I'm not sure. But he gave a talk, and the talk is published. Uh, now, you can get it very easily. It's called The Creative Act. 
a very short talk. And in that text, the Creative Act, he said, look, um, when, you, when artists say, I'm a very important artist, look at me, he says they, can't, they shouldn't really do that because the, what decides the importance of art and artists is posterity, he uses this word posterity. And if the audience, if the public, the posterity, doesn't like your work, or the, you know, perhaps the art institutions don't appreciate your work, you're, you can easily be lost to history. So, I suppose, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, um, I suppose that's another form of chance. The unknown um, repercussions of your work in the future, and who sees it or doesn't see it, and so on. Right, so that's another aspect of chance, the um, openness of work. And that, I think that, that little essay from 1957 is a precursor, really, of Roland Barthes' um, essay, The Death of the Author, ten years later, where Barthes says it's the author that makes the work, not the, um, not the writer, not the, not the author as such. Have we got a couple more minutes? Yeah. Right, OK. And then I'll open it up to, yeah. to others. Yeah. So... Um, Talking, you know, more specific, but more generally then about Duchamp, uh, saying his interest in chance is a prominent thing in his work. Uh, I still, I think that Duchamp's interest is kind of ambivalent. On the one hand, he, re he seems to regard, when you read interviews of him, that if you use chance, you can escape from your own self, you can escape from your own uh, preoccupations and habits of repetition. So that's an opening up, a getting away from things. But he also said on a couple of occasions, remarks like this, my chance is not your chance. Right, so it's like he's saying, well, my chance is very particular. It's not just chance, anybody's chance. Mine's better than yours or worse than yours. So, you know, how open is chance? That's what I'm trying to say. Is it, is it like very open and you just get what you get? Or is some person's, one person's chance better than someone else? And Alan Caprow, the um, very famous um, instigator of happenings in the 60s, he wrote, I'll, I'll stop actually and not talk about Gavin Bryce, but uh, Alan Caprow in 1966, made a reference to John Cage, the composer, who also used chance. And he said, the thing about John Cage is loads of people have followed his techniques using randomness to generate um, artworks, but none of them are as good as Cage. So again, this thing is the idea that some chance is better than, you know. Uh, shall I talk about Gavin Bryce for one minute yes, or not? Yes, yeah, I think oh. your, your own personal interest in Gavin Bryce makes it essential that you do actually talk about it. It's him. essential, is it? All right. Yeah. It's, yeah okay. it's well, no, there's no chance. <laughs> yeah, other all right. Than, other than that. <laughs> we'll do the jokes later. Um, well, just for a minute or two. Um, Gavin Bryant is a uh, British composer. He's about 70 years old now. And one of his most famous pieces, you may well know it, is called The Sinking of the Titanic. And that's a piece from 1969. And it's a kind of conceptual musical work. In that, Bryant said, I thought, I, he thinks of it himself as a, a conceptual work, except it involves sound, not visual things, right? And what it, what it is, it's a piece about the you know, actual event of the sinking of the Titanic. And what Bryce did, he collected as much information as possible about the sinking. And he looked through all the letters from survivors and whatever he could get hold of. And he made notes about the references to sound in the documentation of the sinking. So, for example, um, one survivor said that um, she entertained a, a baby in one of the lifeboats while the ship was sinking, by playing a uh, music, a playing, uh, she had a toy pig that was a music box, so she distracted the child by playing the music box. So in the piece of Sinking of the Titanic, you get usually the sounds of the music box. But Bryce, when he performs this piece, he always does it, it, it this is a chance, but it's open to uh, all sorts of different configurations of playing. So in theory, no two performances are, are even close to the same, I think they are. But another factor in it is that one of the survivors said, or some of the survivors said that as the band, because the famous the band on the ship kept playing as the ship was going down, very famous heroic moment in the, in the story of the Titanic, and one, one set of survivors says that the band played a hymn called Autumn, like leaves falling, Autumn, and another group of survivors said it was a tune called Autumn, A-U-G-H-T-O-N. So Bryant uses music from both these pieces to make his piece. So there's the kind of chance element of being, being open to different uh, resources. Um, and then, just to, well, I'll just stop. The, so I think it's a, a very good piece in the tradition of Duchamp, because what Brian says that when, uh, when he got st stuck as a composer and couldn't think of any music to write, he spent three years studying Duchamp and taught him lots
lots of techniques from the, for getting his composing going again. So there's a kind of connection there. Um, but also, just to go back to the Malone and Dice Throw, the sinking of the Titanic is about a sinking ship, isn't it? But in the, in the Malone poem, it's uh, a, a ship sinking in absolutely stormy, disastrous weather. And in the Briars thing, the Titanic famously sank in an absolutely calm ocean. That's it. Oh, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I was just saying that uh, the way that Simon came into this relationship is through you, actually, at Freeze Art Fair. Then uh, oh, yeah. we were introduced, and we had a sort of impromptu discussion about coincidence, especially about our mothers, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, also, then I realised that I'd never seen your um, your particular r uh, disaster, the, your flat. No, I mean the actual. <laughs> Uh, the actual aeroplane wing that has embedded itself somehow, and it, you need to explain. This yeah, I, I'm going to let him do. <laughs> uh, a very beautifully engineered aeroplane wing, which seemed to me to relate to some sort of disaster that had left a trace, but it's in such an obtuse, in an obscure way that it related back for me to the Malame's idea of a disappearance uh, or an appearance of a disappearance and. And, you, and it starts to unfold a, a completely different notion of, of how, um, uh, for me, curating, uh, using one's own domestic space and experience, as you say, my chance, your chance, are completely non-synonymous. You can't relate them. So there's a, there's a communication of that chance operates in an infinite capacity, but in very, very specific ways. So, the, and, you know, I think I've talked to Colm about this as well. Um, and perhaps we could, you know, talk about the, uh, the aeroplane wing and some, some aspect of how that, how that came about. I could certainly. I'll talk, I'll talk a bit about the aeroplane. In many, many ways, I'd, I'd like to respond to so many of the points that Peter brought up, but just come in. The thing with the aeroplane project, it's, it's certainly chance and contingency and the notion of disaster and this idea of the wreck, but also how disasters, wrecks and chance actually leave huge traces and traces that we ignore uh, with the idea, certainly the aeroplane, because what I've got is it's basically it's a, council, a fifth floor council flat in Fulham and I built a full-scale Dakota aeroplane wing, absolutely cutting, incising the flat in half. It's an absolutely absurdist piece, and what I attempted to do was to hide this absolutely giant piece in the flat, and it actually does hide a little bit too effectively, perhaps. Maybe the work would have been more successful if I hadn't hidden it so well. But that's another part of chance. I mean, for instance, I'll have people come round to read the gas meter or something, and I've ripped down all the walls in the flat, and as you walk in the front door, you're confronted with a giant aeroplane wing cutting the flat. And people come in to read the gas meter and kind of see it, ignore it, go to the gas meter. I go, yeah, yeah, that's an aeroplane in the flat. I go, oh, yes, so it is. And ignore it because it's so big, it's so huge, it's so absurd, it's actually ignored. And I think, without trying to say why I made the piece, there's taking 9-11, the disaster or the event or the artwork, as you could see it in, in New York at that time, and how I took a conceit that these, this collision of modernism, of uh, the modern aeroplane, the most beautiful object, this kind of pinnacle of mankind's technological movement forward with the pinnacle of capitalism, the Twin Towers, and this collision as they happened. And the conceit being that it created such a weighty and powerful metaphor that it collapsed the Twin Towers. That was my joke. And the joke that goes into the work is something very much Duchampian. My favorite quote from Duchamp is when asked about his practice and why he actually worked at certain things, they say, it amuses me, or it amuses me. And to have that, the ability to discard and to throw away, and to admit the contingency perhaps, and the meaninglessness of everything, and the fact that chance is chance itself that actually imbues meaning and gives meaning. And it's the fact that we will agree, there's an agreement there.
So these are elements that are all in basically a hidden aeroplane in a council flat in a full of thing. And the idea of a wreck ties in very nicely with this. I like that word wreck as well, something I relate to a lot. But I'll pass it on to someone else in the group who wants to take the microphone next. Okay. I was interested in your, uh, your dissertation was actually on performance, um, but in a special relationship to music. Was it? I'm not no, sure what it was. No, it was. Um, I could I could talk about a little bit about that, um, but I'll probably talk about something else. Yeah, go on. Um, so, in terms of music, somebody that is interesting is Charles Ives, who was a kind of turn-of-century, 19th-century composer. Um, he was American, and he was um, an insurance salesman, which I think is significant. That's how he earned his living, um, and. He wrote these pieces that kind of juxtaposed um, two different musical worlds. So he had like an orchestra um, playing, and then suddenly a brass band would be playing kind of American, very patriotic songs, things like that. And you'd have these two sound worlds going on at the same time. And um, I thought that was quite interesting in terms of chance because it was this idea of capturing something um, that you might hear on the streets. Um, that kind of clash of, of sounds, or that clash of worlds that you might find. Um, and I think that his profession as an insurance salesman um, and dealing with numbers and dealing with charts is quite interesting in that respect. Um, because I actually want to talk about numbers um, and, and luck, chance and luck. I'm just, I was thinking last night about how chance comes about and where it is now and things like that. So um, I was actually at a conference yesterday about finance because um, in the last two years or something then I decided that I didn't really want to um, curate as much as I have done in the past. And actually I wanted to look at how do we, you know, what do we think about this money thing, um, this stuff that makes the world go round and how do we kind of absorb it or interact with it and, and like what's our relationship to it and stuff like that. So that brings me back to the nature of markets, um, this idea of speculation, taking charts, um, the idea of play. So the chancer, who is the chancer today? Um, the chancer is a bogeyman in a way. The chancer represents this kind of reckless um, abandonment sometimes. Um, the chance of plays games, um, whether they're video games or whether they're kind of games that uh, play with, uh, you know, microtransactions um, that make stock markets fall immediately. Um, what relation does that have to art? Um, Andrew Frazier, um, for the Whitney Biennale last year, I think it was, um, had this short piece about art prices and it was saying that um, the rising price of art correlates directly to rising economic inequality and so what is the, what is our relationship to that as kind of artistic producers? So going back to um, this idea of, of chance, um, one of the most interesting things that I learned about finance, because I, I did some kind of financial and investment management qualifications and things like that, um, just to understand the language um, of what's used, how it's understood, all those sorts of things. There's this thing called the capital asset pricing model, um, which sounds very boring, um, but actually it's the basis of capitalism. Um, and it basically says it's, a, it's just a formula, um, and there's a sort of constant number that's generated from somewhere, depending on what what you're measuring, and uh, it's about how this number that's generated in relation to something else um, depends on nothing except for itself. So it doesn't take into account 
the opportunity cost. It doesn't take into account um, all of the externalities. So, in a way, it's it's completely random, but at the same time, it's also completely structured. Um, so we think about betting. We think about um, you know the there's a tripartite structure of risk and return and horizon, which for the, which made me think about. Um, the show that Pete organised last year. Um, so what's the relationship between um, the risks that we take, the risks that we take in life, the risks that we take as artistic producers, and return? What are we asking for? Who's taking on that risk? Um, you've got to be in it to win it. What does that mean? Um, what's the, who's taking responsibility? Um, what are the questions around inclusion or exclusion in the widest terms? Um, Malame kind of talks about this elitism, um, or he kind of refers to this uh, privileged view of privileged um, audience who understands the language. And, and what happens if we don't understand the language? He thinks that maybe we're lazy or unintelligent, something like that. So I was thinking a lot about expectation, anticipation. Um, well, what happens, I, I think, in the, in the Malawi is that he keeps us in limbo. There's this idea of kind of, it's like, well, where is he, where is he bringing us to? Where is he bringing us to? It's almost complete, but then is it? And then you're kind of looking and rereading re back on it. Um, but then he's determined that. So he's, he's structured that already for us. So again, it comes back to this idea of like, whose chance is it? What chance have you got to get out of the system um, that, that's already been created? Um, and of course, when you when you engage in this, when you engage in this play, then you're you're engaging in this structured thing. What about fair play? We need to have fair play. What does that mean? Who's who's fair play? Um, and who's who's um, who's producing or who's generating the rules for this fair play? Um, I wonder whether, where does this responsibility lie, or where does it exist nowadays? Where does, who do we trust, and what do we trust in, and what structures do we trust? I, I thought another thing that was interesting that came up around the Malame was, and also, artistic decision making is what happens after the charts. Where does that leave us? So going back to this idea of trace um, and what is left over, what remains from the event um, or what remains from the performance of this act. And I was thinking also about the computer program. So systems um, and also this idea of um, I guess it's, I'm trying to decide whether the, the program or the system is the opposite or is actually the chance that enables the chance. So you have inputs, input variables, then you have the system that's being created and then there's the output. And at what points do we kind of interact in or what, at what points do we change the thing? Um, and and how does that kind of how does that make us how does that make our um, production or our act creative? There's probably some other things about. <laughs> Quite interested with you know, the way that the poem might also at the same time. Um, offer some political um, possibility because it's to do with the infinite but not the infinite as a transcendent but very much as a terrestrial number uh, but that that number exists whereas it would you know on the first reading it would appear that it's purely solipsistic kind of um, surrealistic kind of writing but actually it's a very structured as you say uh, codified 
piece of work that uses what that you would call an extreme of language, the figure, pushed to the complete extreme extremity of language, but also the code of the mathematical organization. And by doing that, it exchanges a space with the political plane. Now that's really complex stuff in Badiou and it takes a lot of, of reading to get what he's talking about, the relation of politics and poetry. But he often inverses it when he talks publicly. He often says that it's the poetic that is the essential, uh, the insertion of the subject yeah, into a possible space of possibility. And the Robert Philly units is called their institution of endless possibilities. Seems to suggest that there was a chance occurrence here where we had no idea that the filiou was going to be gone and it would be called that or that it would also involve an enormous piece of work about dice. So, you know, the, when uh, Lisa the Berber wrote and said this is fantastic, we thought, well, yeah, now everything's changed. The whole, you know, in a way it does politicise the institution because the institutions have taken on board the notion of chance operation by accident. <laughs> so it's kind of a quite an interesting com complex of, va of variables that are infinite variables that brought those two things so closely together. And that you could analyze it through, you know, kind of Freudian, Lacanian analysis, Marxist analysis. You could use all kinds of different kinds of an uh, analytical methods to determine how that chance is actually structured uh, through millions and millions of uh, coordinates. But, you know, I wanted to just keep going, really, and talk about practice. Uh, so, in terms of, say, Nusheen's piece, Colin said, this, uh, whose work is this? <laughs> it is quite a fantastic piece. I recommend you look at the, um, the screen works. And what, for me, is important is that the artists here and the students are, are working on the same plane. This is exactly what I mean. There's no difference between the Henry Moore Institute. I'm glad they've got the walkway coming you know, between the two institutions, and I think that this sort of opportunity we have here is, is to change the institution. Uh, it still exists, the institution, and it's the institution, as they say, of endless possibilities. But it's also, that's how, you know, talk about Andrew Fraser, um, it's not over, this relation to the avant-garde. So I, the reason why I'm teaching my students is, in, the, in a way, not to dismiss some of these ancient <coughs> possibilities in the past, that actually the future is made like that, but from not dismissing that, uh, that some kind of... Cause quite, sorry, just quickly, but quite often, I don't need to mind, but quite often people say, oh, it's all been done anyway, hasn't it? You know, it's yeah. all been done. Yeah. But, but if it has all been done, then... Uh, but the, precisely because it's all been done, is that, uh, that it has to be done again. I think this is a kind of niche. Probably issue. better. People who say it's all been done. I'm sorry, I lost my voice recently. That's convenient. Singing. Singing. Shouting. Students. The reason people who say it's all been done are the people who, who are at the top of the ladder. Because it's not all been done. There's always new artists and new designers. And there's always new farmers and new thinkers. So, and that, my thing about chance, uh, which is a bit odd, is um, the idea that it's often seen as the, um, uh, the thing that has to be added on to the thing that really rules. And it's often seen as, a, as a, something that has to happen by chance. Almost like through some ridiculous idea of us sons all being shamans or something like this. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's about the hierarchy of processes which, which comes into play. And, the, and in fact, as curator, Peter Lewis, and teacher, uh, I was in his shamanistic, paranoid way, didn't let me go home last night, <laughs> because I had to stay in London. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Because the chance of not getting back from Chatham where we live, where it hasn't all been done, actually, um, into London to, to distribute the tickets to our friends and colleagues was too great. And I, I understood his, his, um, his thinking, the poetic and the mentality, and so I didn't go home. It's quite simple. Yeah, what about the chance that if we'd all missed the train, this might have been more interesting? I'd have had to do it. 
to Isotopica here on Resonance 104.4 FM, your worldwide international and fantastic art radio station. Today's Isotopica has featured seven academics on a train, details of which can be found on my website being www.theculture.net. Um, you got any feedback, you got anything you want to know about, then that's the place to send it and to contact us about the show. I hope to be with you, same time, same place, same fabulous resonance, 104.4 FM, next Tuesday between the hours of 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The show is also repeated for our American listeners at 6 a.m. Sunday morning, summertime. Okay, this is me, Simon Tushko, signing off for another seven days. Nice to be with you. Bye. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. 
Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.